Introducing Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer. Blending the smooth, creamy nitro taste of Guinness with hints of coffee, chocolate, and caramel. Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, your new favorite part of the day. Look for it where Guinness is sold. Must be 21 and over to purchase. Please enjoy responsibly. Diageo Beer Company, New York, New York. Are you ready to meet the moment? Ozzy and our friends at Chevrolet are proud to present Real Talk, Real Change to help foster racial equality in America. And we're inviting you to help. Join me, Carlos Watson, as I talk with key leaders from across the country about racial disparities in America's healthcare system. Look for The Carlos Watson Show and Real Talk, Real Change on YouTube and subscribe. Or download The Carlos Watson Show wherever you get your podcasts. I'm JP, and welcome to a new show on the Grapple Podcasting Network. Sounds fancy, that. Uh, it's the Grapple Roundtable. And basically, this is a new show where we're going to be doing sort of having a panel on to do a deep dive into a specific topic, as well as getting some opinions on some of the bigger stories in wrestling. So, uh, this week's topic is particularly relevant, giving the speaking out movement, and... Basically, it's wrestling and journalism and the wrestling media. And we've got an excellent panel of experts with us today. Uh, first of all, we have uh, Emily Pratt, um, who is a freelance writer, a contributor to Fanfight and Deadlock, as well as the journals Mind Games and Orange Crush. Emily, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for finding the time to come on. Uh, next up, we have Stephanie Chase. Uh, she is an interviewer and journalist covering New Japan, WWE, NXT, AW, and Impact. A question mark maybe whether or not you're still doing Impact um, for Sports Keeda and Digital Spy. And she will defend Jay White to the death. It's Stephanie Chase. Hello, Steph. <laughs> hey, JP. Great to talk to you again. Thanks ever so much for coming on, tolerating me again. And last, but by no means least, we have Will Cooling. He's the host of the British Wrestling Report on PW Torch. He covers Midlands Pro Wrestling for the Wolverhampton Express and Star. And he has been hot on the beat uh, these last few weeks with a level of uh, prolific that reminds me of Robbie Fowler in the mid-90s. Hello, Will. How are you? Yeah, but that's when he played for Everton school team. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, thank you for having me on, JP. Um yeah, it's uh, it's been an interesting few weeks. Uh, as I said, I, I technically cover Midlands Pro Wrestling. I'm not sure there's any left. I actually was in a meeting with the West Midlands TUC earlier today to talk about what the the, do, the workers can do for pro wrestlers, and it's 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 all very unclear at the moment. Oh, big stuff. Um, so first of all, let's get started. Let's get straight into it, Emily. <laughs> Go straight into <laughs> no pressure. Um, Emily, yeah, exactly. Going to turn this into Jeopardy at some point as well. Um, how do you think, from what you may well have read or heard, how do you think the coverage of Speaking Out has been? Um, I think it's been a 
mixed bag. Uh, I think, and I think it like how the quality of the coverage, um, it doesn't correlate with like people being professional journalists or people being like hobbyists or kind of like having started their own blog and work being like working on building it and stuff, which is interesting. Uh, I think we've seen some good, like responsible reporting of really gathering like all the facts and presenting them in a responsible way. And some people doing some quality like analysis about like, would this be different if there was a union or kind of other options? And then there's been some irresponsible reporting, like that they were recording it. I'm not sure when this is going out, but like the wrestling server. Oh yeah. Wrestling observer radio just like had an episode where like Dave Meltzer completely like, I, I almost could not even believe how much he like belittled the, issues with Matt Riddle and Will Ospreay like on this episode and I was just like oh my god I I can't believe it like this is the biggest name in this so um yeah it's been a mixed bag I'm trying to like kind of you know when I see hear or see something really bad I try to remember like okay there are so many people who are handling this and in a way where it's like they remember everybody involved is like a human being and being good at wrestling or not good at wrestling doesn't determine your worth as a human being or as like somebody capable of like doing good or bad things. Um, so yeah, that's overall my take is like it really, really a mixed bag, but like there is, you know, there is a fair amount of good stuff mm. out there. I think. Steph, how have you found it? Because obviously uh, you kind of deal much more in, I suppose, sort of the mainstream world of of wrestling. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask is, I mean, are you surprised by the relatively little amount of mainstream coverage of of what's happened? Do you think it did it get lost in the shuffle amongst the stories involving sort of comedy and video games? Um. I wouldn't really say I'm surprised at the lack of mainstream coverage because wrestling getting any mainstream coverage uh, isn't like that doesn't really happen. Um, and I think, yeah, with other industries like comedy um, and things that have happened in film, that's obviously a much bigger uh, industry. So that's going to get all the spotlight on it. And with wrestling, you had some uh, allegations like such as like Matt Riddle being someone that's on WWE mm. that people may like that's a name that would have got attention. But so much of this was happening in the less the indie scene that isn't going to get reported on anyway, that I think, yeah, it did get completely missed by the mainstream. And, um, but maybe it will come up eventually um, as further things happen. But uh, right now I can't say I'm surprised that the mainstream didn't pick it up because I think to the mainstream, Anything that happens in wrestling that has any seriousness isn't serious because it's wrestling. I don't think that the mainstream can look at it um, in the same kind of uh, objective way because they just don't understand wrestling anyway. Mm. So it's kind of harder for them to see. Um, the mainstream doesn't kind of get like what a huge industry wrestling is beyond wwe it doesn't get all the small promotions it doesn't get 
everything everything that goes on that's not on television and it doesn't get this whole idea of like training schools and in promotions and everything being um, connected and how you can have this whole like system of abuse that's being built into something because they don't kind of see the structure of wrestling beyond what is on TV, WWE or AEW. Yeah, for a long time, for a lot of journalists, wrestling is uh, WWE and WWE is wrestling. Will? Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing as well is, is it's a very difficult story to cover. So I've had a few conversations with mainstream outlets because like, I'm happy to do things for American websites as a hobbyist and protected by the wonderful First Amendment. I don't really want to do it for a British outlet. Um, the, the, the standards, the legal standards are much higher. And you know, you've had interests, um, particularly locally, and the issue has always been, I think, is reporting restrictions. Like I, I did an article about Travis Banks, Money McKenzie, uh, for Pro Wrestling Torch, which I'd actually tried to be very careful not to to go to cross the line where it becomes libelous, potentially libelous, I should say. And I thought I'd done it quite well. And actually, the a journalist I spoke to for a mainstream outlet said, actually, there's like ten things you're doing in this article we would not be able to do. Mm-hmm. Not least of all, believe it or not, is mention Minnie McKenzie. Because if she ever decided to bring it to court, she would have the right to um, insist on anonymity. Um, you might say, oh, she's, she's talking about it in public, but until she waves it in court, she still has that right. So I think one of the issues you've had in Britain is actually there are quite severe barriers to actually get this stuff checked out legally before mainstream outlets can report on it. And it's kind of an unholy combination. You've got that kind of mixture of the legal... Plus, at the same time, you've got the kind of press restrictions as well, which then kind of leads to really where we are now, Emily. I mean, in terms of wrestling media itself, I mean, it's not really set up to cover stories like this, is it? No. <laughs> yeah, no, it isn't. It's like, um, yeah, I mean, people generally get into doing media for wrestling because they like wrestling <laughs> and not because they're they're you know, really want to write about like the real life aspects of it, unless it's like being, you know, I think everybody likes to hear backstage stories to some extent, but um, yeah, I think, yeah, there's like a lot of people who are just like blogging about wrestling and they feel that they should cover backstage rumors, quote unquote, and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But then when it's like, Oh, there are actually, this is like people's jobs and like people's lives and it's things that happen back, backstage or off screen are not just like tabloid rumors. Sorry, my phone. That's uh, right. Yeah. So I think that some people are probably finding they're not really like equipped to deal with it personally as well as like some, I know when I worked for Uprox, which I did until recently, kind of any, anything, serious uh we had to go through that what that was like a um a larger website we were like the wrestling section of a larger website that covered music and sports and stuff like that and kind of anything serious we would have to get sent through like another another level of editorial and stuff just this is like an american website so we were didn't have the same situation as will was talking about but yeah that's another issue 
also, which, which I like in our case, I think this was like, it is good too. If you're normally right about more lighthearted pop culture stuff. And then it's like, okay, we don't normally deal with this. Yeah. Let's have more people check it out. I think that's like a good practice, but it is like, it, it is like, uh, you know, so many places in media, people are like already kind of just stretched their <laughs> limit and they like are not paid very well. So that's like, it's hard for people to kind of have the incentive to like, they really have to take it upon themselves to like usually put in the extra time, mm. even if it's like at a professional outlet. And the thing you have to remember is the discouragement talking about difficult topics. I mean, yeah, this for coronavirus, it'd be true for things about sexual assault. Advertisers don't want to see the advert next to a depressing, horrible story. Mm. And so you're an advertising funding, an advertiser funded website. It's, there's a lot of pressure to not talk about this, just talk about the stuff that actually your WWE fans want to mm-hmm. talk about. And I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things you always have to, you can't overlook, you know, like, to a certain extent, people get the media they deserve, and I think wrestling fans get the wrestling media they deserve. And I'll give you an example. I used to write for Fight Square magazine, I don't think the former editor will mind me saying this, they had to have a WWE guy on the front cover. Mm-hmm. They try to do the occasional veteran WCW guy. They try to do the occasional UFC guy. They try to do Impact. If they did not have a WWE guy on the front cover, people would not buy the magazine. Just based on the wrestler who was on the front cover. So there is also that pressure of, do you spend all this time, all this money, developing an article on this really difficult subject when the people who are actually going to read your stuff are the people who are trolling victims mm. in Twitter comments. The whole system is set up to actually not talk about these issues. Yeah, and it's funny. I mean, earlier on, Emily, you mentioned Dave Meltzer. I was kind of thinking and looking at, like, the. it's very odd because you look at the kind of different areas of journalism that exist. He's kind of doing, like... Expect you know he's doing feature writing, he's doing news, he's doing reviews, he's doing columns, but he's also kind of doing investigative journalism. I say investigative in inverted quotes. I can't think of human beings who are kind of set up to do that. And yeah. you know, in your profession, Steph, like, is this are those all of those skills? It's not feasible for you to be able to cover all of these things. Um, no, and um, a rest section of somewhere um we certainly not like have that many people on staff for people to take on all these different things like it's so hard enough to get the person to wwe and to do uh, wrestling itself is um this business that like people on the outside don't understand and people like have all these different thoughts of and then when you look at how wrestling journalists because the secrecy of wrestling have been traditionally treated, mm. it's no wonder that wrestling journalism isn't that great, even if we did have, like, a mainstream backing, because, like, just to use, like, Dave as an, ex- as an example, obviously this has not been a good week to be... No. <laughs> but if you, if you look at the history of, like, Dave's writing and this whole idea of like dirt sheets and whatever and how 
like the wrestling industry kind of looked at that to the point where it's like they didn't even want anyone reporting on wrestling. And even the fact that wrestling has a history of like the after mics of people actually selling magazines of these character stories is hmm. kind of small when you think about it as well. Um, so I think wrestling just has its own kind of weird problem where there's a certain uh, section of fans that don't want anyone to in any way like critique wrestling. It feels like only in wrestling would you have that um, debate that you see online of can you even critique a wrestling match if you haven't wrestled? Like that's like such a that is such a wrestling mm. thing because just the industry in itself with the with the secrecy that it's had with its strange history that is all bred into how wrestling journalism is where it's this weird thing where you've got some people that write for it for some mainstream outlets and that's very small and then you've got a lot of people sometimes with a much bigger platform that are essentially bloggers who are or in a way just tweeters who are just trying to raise their profile as much as they can by using like backstage rumors backstage this you know like that kind of to like draw people in um so yeah wrestling media in itself is as bizarre as the wrestling business and i think anyone that's not connected to the wrestling business at all would be completely like what the fuck about mm. not just wrestling is and the wrestling business like i have subjected enough non-wrestling fans to wrestling podcasts when i've been in hotels with them and they cannot believe that there is enough news in wrestling to <laughs> um like for example an observer podcast every day and i'm sitting telling them like if you think there's a lot going on in whatever you're into you have no idea what wrestling is like you know for someone with so much going on there's just so little um like proper uh, way to get it out it seems yeah at least it's always seemed like it's reporting on the Wild West. Like, yeah. how do yeah. you do that? It's a lawless, unregulated industry. Will? Yeah, I, I agree with everything Steph said there. I think mm. it's um, absolutely true. I just want to go back to that point you were making about Dave, JP, which is it's not just that one person can't do this. It's that they shouldn't. And mm. this is not an attack on Dave. We'll, we'll, we'll unfortunately get to that later. Um, but, like... You know, that's the way he makes his money. That's the way, say, like, the, the editor of the website that I do my podcast for, where Kayla makes his money. But in normal journalism, you wouldn't have your investigative reporter, your editor, your mm. film critic, your, um, you know, lifestyle features interviewer be the same person because they have different push-pull influences incentives for their work mm. um i know you wouldn't want your outspoken critic to be the person who's got to get interviews with your with your kind of performers because if they're outspoken and they're in their reviews they're going to annoy the uh, pe people they're trying to interview or vice versa they're going to pull punches on the reviews and then not uh, out so they can get the interviews you know etc 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 and I think you see this to a certain extent this year, which is, you know, who are the people who have gotten the best scoops in wrestling this year? It's not a Dave Meltzer. It's probably somebody like Sean Ross Sapp, 
mm. who, you know, personally nothing against the guy, I think pulls his punches quite badly against WWE. But be- because of that, he has better connections mm. within WWE because it is such a partisan, you know, back back outside type business. And so you get a, you get a story like this, you know. Dave, no, someone like Dave, someone like Wade, anybody. They not only are they trying to do all these various different things they've got to do. You then have the issue of region, because one of the difficult things of speaking out is: is it a British story that went stateside? Is it a state? Is it an American story that went to Britain? It's somewhere in between, and so. A lot of the time, you're getting American journalists talk about a British aspects of the story, which they have to do because their American listeners or their British listeners want to hear them talk about it, but they don't actually understand the minutiae of the issue because most British journalists wouldn't understand it either, and so it just it's just exposed how mm. inadequate wrestling journalism is, and it's not the the individual journalist's faults, it's that the system has created, um, has basically set themselves up to fall. Speaking of Dave Meltzer, a very sort of breaking story for when we're recording um, was his thoughts on the Will Ospreay situation, and in particular some of the comparisons he made with that. Will, going to ask you, how, what did you make of it? Yeah, and I, I, I suppose, like, you know, I, I think I was one of the first people to bitch and moan about this on Twitter uh, uh, on the day of recording when it, when I lis- was listening to Wrestling Observer. And I want to just preface this, like, I do have, I mean, utmost respect for Dave. Um, you know, he's obviously done this for a long time, and he is surprisingly helpful to journalists on the way up, uh, in, in my experience, obviously maybe different from other people. Um, but he got this badly, badly wrong. And it's not the first time during this speaking out moment he's got it badly wrong. You know, he compared people, um, uh, he compared the last way to Hannah Kimura. And that's just wrong. Um, Hannah Kimura was somebody who did nothing wrong. You know, there was a silly stunt on a reality show that got a vitriolic, you know, hate mail. Um, um, that, that she was co-opted into doing by the television company. Exactly. It was. It was nothing to do with wrestling. It was nothing to do with wrestling. Mm. It wasn't wrestling fans sending the hate messages. It was. In t- it was the reality show fans. And with Will Ospreay, you know, obviously there have been people saying awful things with Ospreay that they shouldn't be saying, and that's wrong. But. What I've seen is mostly people holding him to account and saying, look, you yourself admit it that you bad-mouthed uh, Pollyanna, woman's wrestler, um, our, you know, when promotions asked whether they should book her. Uh, you're not just some thicker who just does flips. Um, you know, you at the time you were a promoter for uh, Lucha Forever, which, by the way, went out of business uh, in venues, wrestlers, fans, thousands and thousands of pounds. You sent us for another promotion called Frontline, where the woman, sorry, the, per, the man that Pollyanna um, accused of raping her, sexually assaulting her, 
you booked him on that show, repeat on that in that promotion repeatedly, and you know you can. You know, everyone's gonna make judgment calls when it comes to these allegations. You can make judgment calls, but what Dave did was he compared somebody who did nothing wrong to somebody who's been accused of blacklisting a rape uh, sexual assault victim. Um, he has compared. Reality show fans who drove a woman to suicide with wrestling fans who are trying to get Will Ospreay, a man who has had unending adulation from uh, wrestling fans, including myself, including JP. Um, And not only that, but you dismiss the allegation of something that happened years ago. It didn't happen years ago. It happened in 2000, you know, these allegations first surfaced, what, 2017, 2018? That's not that long ago. And you said that the people who make the most noise about this don't care about the truth, which is like, well, no, actually, we do care about the truth. The truth is obvious. If you understand anything about the British wrestling business, if you understand anything about the British wrestling business, you know how important the resistance gallery is to small independent promotions that want to run London. Um, the international, no, the IWL, um, the one that has came forward and actually admitted to removing uh, Pollyanna on the behest of, of, uh, of the people behind Lucha Britannia, but also Pro Wrestling Eve, also other promotions. And we all know that either Will Ospreay directly or people working on his behalf Toll promotions who relied on the resistance gallery to knock book Pollyanna. And that spread like a ricochet throughout the industry. And, you know, you don't necessarily have to believe that Scotty Ray might sexually assaulted her, raped her. You don't necessarily have to believe that Will Ospreay made it his mission to destroy her. But you can't dismiss the allegations as unfounded because there's so much circumstantial evidence available. You can't dismiss the people who are trying to pursue this story and get Osprey to properly own up to what he did as hysterical or as hate-filled. And you certainly can't pretend that this is all some tittle-tattle that happened years ago, because it isn't. Frontline, Scotty Rainwright was wrestling for Frontline last year. It's that recent. Yeah. Oh, I'll, I'll add, uh, I think like part of why this is so frustrating for, and like irresponsible from a journalism perspective in covering the whole speaking out situation, anything about abuse, like not only in wrestling, but in other entertainment, it's like, if we make, if we say like, if you're good enough or you're popular enough, you don't have to face any consequences for anything and you can do whatever you want and your friends can do whatever you want and nobody's going to stand up to you like that incentivizes bad behavior and like media should not (laughs) media needs to not stick up for that like I think this is like the I think that's so easy to see looking at it on a macro like stepping back from it like this in context the most powerful like people doing this is like we need to not make exceptions for them no matter how much 
you like them as a wrestler. Like I really enjoy the work of Matt Riddle. <laughs> I'm like very concerned about what's going on with him. Like I, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's like very enabling of just like abuse in the industry for people who should know better to, to, uh, to like make exceptions for like people they're friendly with or people they're like, cause that's kind of like a big part of why this is such a big problem in the first place. Yeah, I think Steve is um, definitely trying to make some kind of uh, exception for Osprey, but I think Dave, uh, like, I am I am someone that listens to Dave every day. Like, I'll put that out there. I do, I do always listen to him. I do respect him as a journalist. But every time anything comes up in wrestling that you would say is uh, something to do with women or any kind of women's kind of issue, when David's about to talk about it, I immediately cringe because... I think there there is something there that's maybe his, I don't want to say it's his age, but his bubble that he keeps himself in, mm-hmm. that he doesn't seem to be the most open to understanding problems uh, from other people, women, let's say, that aren't in his bubble. And, um, and you know, you can, like, he, he, he just has this idea of, like, no one can say he has any kind of misogyny because he really likes 90s Japanese women's wrestling. So he'll just use that forever as his cover. But, the, um, the old Manami Toyota defense, right? <laughs> well, some of my favorite wrestlers are, Jap- are Japanese women. Uh, JP, I'll have you know. <laughs> like, he... Dave and also Osprey really don't seem to be seeing um, this situation from the perspective of Pollyanna at all, which I don't understand. It's like Dave is saying, you know, don't go after Will Osprey. Like, well, he, not that he's saying that, but he's but he seems to be thinking like, no, no, he literally said, don't yeah. go after Will Osprey. I mean, that, that, um, that isn't an exaggeration. And I think there's a fear from people that Osprey's career could be ended over this. And anyone that's having this fear, and even Os- Osprey himself, doesn't seem to be showing un- any understanding or empathy towards what Pollyanna went through that might help them um, come to understand why it is an issue and why it is bad. I think Dave wants to um, see it, because there's not like a clear solution for it, okay? It's not like um, you can say he should definitely be fired for this. Like, no one seems to have a clear answer of what we should do with Will Ospreay and I think um, Dave's comments made it seem like he thinks it's something that maybe on the level of like the Sammy Guevara mm-hmm. instance where like he made a mistake a couple of years ago and it's not on the same level as the other allegations we've seen but the Osprey one seems to be somewhere more in the middle verging <laughs> towards the harder end like he he it it does seem he did blackball someone and did really ruin their career and um this needs to be I would just love to see from Osprey himself accountability and empathy and I think if he showed either of those two things then we might not be in a situation where anyone Dave feels like people are handing Osprey because he's getting these messages because he's not. Um, he's not said anything of substance to anyone. He's not said anything satisfactory, but yeah, it's absolutely nothing like the Hannah Kamara incident uh, at all. And it, I thought it was quite strange and disrespectful for, for him to bring it up in that way, actually, because we can't be at the point where 
if someone is asking for someone else to be accountable or even just apologize for something that you turn around and say, don't send them messages, remember what happened to Hannah, when it's not even the same thing at all. Yeah, it's very much a case of false equivalency there. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. I think that comparison, Sammy Cabrera, is a really good comparison in terms of getting across what Dave was thinking. It is important to stress why it's different. I, no, what Sammy did was awful. It's right it's suspended. It's right it's gone through the sensitivity training. But that was like a young trainee with no power in the wrestling business. Will Ospreay in 2017 was one of the five biggest stars in British wrestling, maybe one of the biggest three. Um, he was already a big name. He already had the New Japan stuff. He was somebody who could make or break a promotion. And he was wrestling in the UK more often. So you really knew if you were a small promotion, you couldn't get on his wrong side. And because of his links with Lucha Britannia, the people who controlled the resistance gallery, no, he had even more control. And so there is that power. He, it is not just a fico ranting up on Twitter about his mate. It is somebody with very, you know, with real power in the business. A, a two-time promoter, one of the biggest stars in the, indus- in the industry in Britain, talking about this. And I think one of the issues you have had through speaking out is this kind of, it's the old, uh, it's the old liner, uh, Britons and Americans, we, um, uh, we, we, we speak the same language, but we don't share the same culture. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff that gets lost in translation. I, I want to, if you don't mind, I just want to ask Emily a question, because one of the things I've been struck with when I talk to Americans is it feels like American journalists are much more concerned about the issue of false allegations than British journalists are. British journalists have all their concerns about um, making sure they don't you know cross over libel thresholds, stuff like that. But it seems like American journalists, particularly uh, me, male journalists, have this real fear of what if it's a false allegation? I have several arguments with people. Do you have any understanding about why that may be? Because it, it it definitely feels like it's a it's a bigger concern for Americans than it is their peers in Britain. Um. I don't, I don't really know. I think, yeah, I don't really know because it's like, you can definitely cover this stuff. I think in a way in America where you, I mean, you are not like going to get sued if you just report like the facts of like the story of something like this, where somebody made an accusation, somebody responded and stuff like that. Like, you're I I don't really understand it. I think like some of it is like there there is like misconceptions about how common like false rape accusations are. Like mm. um so I but I don't really know like um what it is uh, I don't know if there's anything specific about American journal I guess we did have like a one high profile actual false rape accusation like a decade ago in sports with the uh, Duke lacrosse team scandal. That's the only like that could be a really big influence on people but like it might just be like misconceptions about how to cover like rape or Mm. how common rape is (laughs) versus false allegations. Uh, There's one thing I could also say as well which is 
and I understand why people get annoyed by this, but both both for legal, no, both for legal protection of people writing it or hosting the articles or the podcasts, but also to prevent things like contempt of tribe. You know, you do have to be careful when talking about allegations and alleged and stuff like that. But I, I do think some people forget the other way. Because, yes, obviously, if you repeat a unsubstantiated allegation as if it's fact, you are it, you risk unfairly damaging somebody's uh, reputation. But if you accept a unsubstantiated denial as fact mm-hmm. and then cast aspersions on the person who made the, the initial accusation, you are damaging that person's reputation. And at the very least, you have to keep neutral language on both sides. I think this is one of the things where, unfortunately, I think the Wrestling Observer has fallen down, which is, you know, it is the, you know, the tried and tested. This is, this is an allegation. The denial is true. Um, we need evidence of the allegation. The denial, it, 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 that, that stands up. And I think that's what we've got to get beyond. Even if you don't want to be too crusading, you don't want to be too out there when it comes to this, at least treat both sides with the same sense of neutrality. Because otherwise you are just empowering people who might, who might abuse women, if not the particular people, the people that are watching this and realize they can get away with whatever they want if they're a good enough wrestler. Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good point. Like the how serious it is like to be a person to like be believed to be somebody who like goes and accuses people of like extremely serious crimes, like that's yeah, that's also like that's very bad for that person's reputation also. So like yeah, new, being yeah, you got to be careful, but it's like I mean, sorry, yeah, sorry, re- re- like definitely recognize like how risky it is for somebody to be to accuse like a powerful person of anything. It's incredibly risky. Mm. I mean, I mean, you won't notice Emily because it's about British politics, but um, um, no, our Labour, no, our Labour Party, our government of Democrats, they're in a process of having to apologise in court for I think seven uh, former party staffers who went forward with allegations of anti-Semitism, and they said these allegations are false, they're a bunch of cranks, they're all just saying it because they hate the current leadership. And they said, well, hang on, wait a minute, you're attacking our character, that's libel. And I think that's, again, like, that's the thing people don't recognize. If you attack people to make accusations, that's libel too, mm. if it's not true. Yeah. Dave, um, he would really have been better saying something completely different than what he said because he literally sounded in his post like he was almost teasing that there was something that people didn't want to know or like didn't know or didn't want to know and it's like okay Dave if you think like there's something that needs to be more investigated here why don't you why don't you go for it instead of uh, making a really cryptic uh, comment at the end when you Firstly, like compared the world situation to Hannah, it was just like a really bizarre, bad, kind of totally non-journalistic way to handle it mm. <laughs> at, at all. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I think as well. Just one thing that just add on to that. Sorry, JP. Um, no also, 
Dave could just say he doesn't want to cover this. Like, he has enough, you know, if he's really that uncomfortable with it, if he just wants to do match reviews, if he just wants to do obituaries, if he just wants to talk about, you know, the ups and downs of the ratings, he can just do that. Like, there is something to knowing your own limits and knowing what you can and can't cover. Mm. Um, and, I, but, yeah, no, it, it, again, like, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Dave Meltzer, but this, 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 this was a bad misstep. I know, Emily, for you, you, you cover a number of promotions, don't you? Um, all non-WWE, would that be correct? Yeah, I kind of, like, when I started writing for Uprax, like, everybody was, I mean, people were already doing all the WWE and Impact, and I watched New Japan, so... You dodged the bullet, basically, didn't you? I did. (laughs) I am glad with what I ended up with. So I kind of, like, because that was what people were not pitching already, I was, like, I kind of made it a habit to look at, like, stories out beyond Mm -hmm. WWE, because that was just what made sense for me to do. Yeah, that, so yeah, that is true. <laughs> and did you find when you were dealing with these promotions, in order to kind of um, cover various features that, that you would be writing, that it is the problem of kind of how wrestling itself is structured in terms of being able to kind of get access? You know, th- did you find like, and you, I'm imagining like all of you would have had those various points of thinking, how the hell do you cover this business? It's just... It's decided almost that it's intrinsically set up not to be covered in a, any kind of serious way. Yeah, um, I guess it it is interesting. You have to have kind of like a just, uh, I mean, even trying to contact like a wrestler or wrestling promotion, it's sometimes easier. Sometimes you can just go through their contact information, but sometimes it's better to like ask your friend who knows somebody who works there and is like, will they really answer this or can you give me some other contact information. Like I was just doing this the other day. So it is like the layer of secrecy, I guess really varies by promotion. And yeah, it's like definitely, you know, it's like a carny business and I guess every company wants to control their own narrative, but it is interesting with wrestling because of just how it's set up. It, it just varies by, if you're even able to like talk to them of like talk to a representative of the company at all or anything like that it, it almost feels i don't know how you feel about it's definitely like sometimes with the smaller indies like companies feels like too grandiose a title um <laughs> it, it, i mean i can understand it within sort of wwe and new japan and and i can even imagine say even a dragon gate has an office per se of people working for them and and a lot of the japanese promotions as well um do you feel, Steph, that, um, like, what can really change within this? Like, I mean, and, and that's really kind of where, where we are at the moment. And I say this as someone who records very much a fan podcast. If there was a, a grandiose term, a grandiose term that I would give myself, it'd be more of, say, a critic or a reviewer as much as anything else. But I can't always admit to being professional about wrestling. Um, is it a case where the people who cover it need to kind of deal with it as an act of, of, you know, treat it with the level of seriousness it deserves? Is it about trying to influence it's, is it about trying to turn wrestling mainstream in order for it to get the coverage? So it is scrutinized in a way where 
the access has to be kind of given by the companies and it's very restricted what you can do? Um, so that's a hard question. But what, what and a rambling one, I apologise. Well, okay. <laughs> um, like, with, with what I do um, with interviewing, like, um, so I, ne- I never want it. I never wanted to do reviews of mm. War SmackDown or anything. So I, I got lucky that the opening was there of someone someone to be an interviewer. Um, and, and that's like the way I wanted to cover wrestling. And I didn't also, the other thing I didn't want to do was kind of like report the rumors or anything like mm. that. Like I, that more, what I'm into doing is talking to people and finding out like who they are, how they got there, uh, all that kind of stuff. Like I end up, um, I have ended up t- <clears throat> talking to a lot of like female wrestlers. It's kind of my favorite thing to do to find out like what what brought them to this. Um, finding out if they had the same experiences of me, as me being a young girl watching it. So I think if you take someone like me, um, I can definitely try when I am getting access to these people to ask more important questions and try and get them to talk on certain topics, um, like. Like, I just talked to Brandy Rhodes, and I did try and ask her about, like, being a woman in wrestling and what kind of conversations like, they're mm-hmm. trying to have, you know, backstage to make sure that all the women feel comfortable. But as far as, like, just the whole wrestling landscape, I don't need, know if there needs to be some kind of separation between, um, I don't want to say, like, journalists and non-journalists, but it seems like everyone's just in the same basket, Mm. Um, and not everyone has the, not just the like backing to go so in depth to things or to cover stuff in a certain degree, but they probably maybe don't have the skills either. So it's just very hard. And I think like Twitter kind of exasperates that as well, because, you know, there's can set yourself up as someone that's commenting or writing on the wrestling industry and all you can all you have to do is send out tweets. So, um, I don't know. It's very difficult to know what they like, because we can't all just get together and decide like, this is what, what we're going to do guys as wrestling, you know, journalists of the world. Um, <laughs> Unite Avengers style. <laughs> but I think, you know, you, you can't just, you know, go out to the mainstream and say, hi, please respect us in wrestling so that we can, uh, like, I wish you could do that. I would do that every day. Like, um, but I think all we could do is like the people that actually want to make wrestling something more serious, something that can be taken more seriously so that if like, God forbid other things happen again, that this can become more of a mainstream story. Mm. Uh, we can just try to push on and hopefully, um, Hopefully, trying to make up wrestling something that people not only understand but take seriously, um, so these things can't happen again. Because I can't help thinking that so much of this is to do with the crazy secret carny business that we're dealing with, and people's perception of the crazy secret carny business that we're dealing with. Yeah, and and Emily, just to to ask uh, to follow on from that. In terms of women um, and their representation within the wrestling media as well, and I say this as someone who's been as guilty as anyone of of not sort of um, listening to women's voices. 
Do you think that's part of the problem here in terms of being taken seriously? Is wrestling media itself represents itself as somewhat of a boys' club? Yeah, I mean, I think... I don't know if that, like, that's an issue specifically with, like, wrestling media as much mm-hmm. as it is with, just, like, wrestling, wrestling fandom, really, where, you know, there's, like, I mean, there's a lot of, there are spaces in wrestling fandom that are, like, just, you know, women in, like, Discord channels and, like, on Tumblr because they, like, do not even want to deal with regular, like, wrestling Twitter and stuff like that, where it's just, like, yeah, I'm just going to, like, hang out with, like, ten of my friends in this Discord channel because I don't want to deal with this. Like, I don't want to deal with some dude getting in my replies because I didn't like this match or whatever. And just, like, silly stuff like that where it's, like, you know, people fight about dumb stuff in, like, all fandoms. But, yeah, I mean, uh, maybe if people are in wrestling media, it would help to kind of, I guess, talk talking about, like, more mainstream art forms like i think it's generally accepted you can have different like critical approaches to things and they're valid as long as you can like do your essay well or your podcast well like you can approach things differently have different opinions and what matters is like how those things are expressed Mm. and then you know you can read an article or a review and decide whether you know evaluate that on your own but i think like sometimes in wrestling there's this thing where it's like well this okay this is like the unimpeachable guy right now nobody can say anything bad about him and people just being really obnoxious to each other about having different opinions so i think if maybe even just on like uh if we could kind of like de-escalate things just on like a fandom level mm. and just like, you know, <laughs> I don't want to be like the, Oh, everybody has to be positive about everything all the time. Cause it's like, you don't. And it's like, it's fun to like, just talk shit about stuff you don't like sometimes, but like, you know, allow people to have their different opinions and don't like decry them because like uh girl fans are dumb or whatever. I think that that would probably help like as a start, I think. Can I come in? Cause I wonder whether we need to escalate things. Because I used to think, like, why is it that wrestling has not had a game against? Oh, yeah. that, that says something nice about pro wrestling. Now, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe pro wrestling fans aren't as big. A bunch of knuckle draggers has some aspects of video game, the video game community. And then you realise, it was like, well, no, actually, the reason why you got game again is that a bunch of, a bunch of predominantly white people can't say exclusively right, predominantly straight, you can't say exclusively straight men, and it was almost entirely men, had their preconceptions challenged, and they threw their toys out of their pram, and they had their preconceptions challenged by young women, and or non-binary people, or trans people, and that hasn't happened in wrestling. So, actually, I almost think like the culture has to get worse, because the reason why wrestling until the past month or so, has gotten away with this culture war breaking out on the, main, on, on the highest level, is that other voices haven't been heard. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you know God bless Dave, Wade, they, these are guys who made their names in the 80s. Can you think of another sport, another art form that 
um, where the leading journalists are hangovers from the 80s. That's just not the way the world works. Like, in most forms of journalism, they're trying to kick out the people that made their names in the 10s, let alone the noughties, let alone the 90s, let alone the 80s. I mean, literally, Dave Meltzer's first reportage was being done in the 70s, for crying out loud. Mm. Um, in terms of this issue of women's representation, it is key. It is key to why this issue and other issues haven't been covered properly. Um, the old feminist line, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Um, and obviously some of that is overt sexism. Um, um, I'm sure, I don't know if you remember this, uh, Steph, but I'm sure JP will. You know, when you had the first women presenter match of the day, um, in terms of a yes. woman football commentator. Jackie you had overt sexism because some men did not want a woman talking about football on their TV. Um, but there's also structural issues. And I think one of the things wrestling media really does struggle with is lack of formal editors. There's a lot of people in pro, in pro wrestling media that call themselves editors, but they're not editors. An editor is somebody who is responsible for a publication. He is going out there, or she is going out there, um, all day, to find talent, to hone talent. And I've done it. I used to do it for a MMA website of a couple of years, a Fox Sports affiliate. And, you know, it's back-breaking work, particularly if you're dealing with raw talent. But the, that work will create new people. And I know the people who did it for me made me a better journalist. There's nobody, in my opinion, who's mm. doing that in pro wrestling. And so it kind of does go to people who are self-motivated, people who are hobbyists, people who have experience in other lines of work, people who are lucky. I'd count myself as the people who have been lucky to break into a system that doesn't have that systemized, we are looking for talent. We know we have to find talent from these underrepresented groups and we are going to work with them to unlock their potential. Um, and, and that's why it is the same people dominating pro wrestling media that dominated in the 80s and 90s because it's a very small pot of money and this is, you know, they they are the people who kind of have the platform. And it's not clear how you break that because you obviously can't expect people to put themselves out of work. But it's obviously ludicrous that, you know, we talk about a sexual abuse scandal in Britain that we, we're looking to a 58, 59-year-old man in California to uh, to report it properly. Yeah. Oh, I have actually a take on this is like, I definitely agree. There's a total, like a lack of, of editors, uh, like some of the, the people like best influences, like on me, since I started writing about wrestling, it were like actual editors who worked for the Uprock sports section. So, which was a more normal structure. And those like were people that really helped me. So I think that like, part of like why they're not editors is like larger problems in digital media. Which, like, you know, there were just like Vox layoffs today and guardian layoffs today. Yeah. It's like so much bigger than wrestling, but, um, Oh, and I think, um, this is like kind of sounds like sucking up because this is like where I currently work, but now I recently started working for fan media more regularly. 
And so I think because we're being so like, oh, there's nobody. I do think um, LB Hunk Tears, which I know is an unusual pen name, but at Hunk Tears on Twitter uh, is the editor. And I think LB is like actually a good editor who is interested in building up new talent. So I think if people are listening to this thinking like, oh, I want to do wrestling media, but I knew like, I would consider, you know, pitching to Fanbytes because there is a freelancer budget and an editor who will work for you so or will work with you to improve stuff and is looking for different perspectives. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. There might be other websites, too, but just in my personal experience, that's something that was appealing to me about working with uh, Fanbyte. So that's a message to all <laughs> any, like... <laughs> Uh, bloggers out there <laughs> who want to write about wrestling. And, like, journalism itself is so hard to break into, like, yeah. let alone wanting to do uh, wrestling journalism. I think, like, <clears throat> someone like like me got lucky that I wanted to do wrestling journalism, ended up getting a job at a place that covered wrestling, and then said, hey, can I do the wrestling stuff? you know, like that kind of way, like that's really the luckiest way you can get to do wrestling journalism because before that, you know, I tried to get in anywhere doing wrestling and it's like, no, you basically have to find another job that will lead you to doing a bit of wrestling and then when you start doing your wrestling stuff, you have to find a way to um, expand that and have people accept things less than an interview with The Rock <laughs> because <laughs> it's like uh, when you're trying to uh, to like build on, on wrestling and stuff and you're going to say like, oh, I can get an interview with this really great wrestler. Well, if the person, um, like the other people working there, if their knowledge of who a wrestler is, is The Rock or Hulk Hogan and it's not one of those two, it can become like very tricky and a constant like I even feel um not not with what I'm doing now but even just just um kind of existing in this wrestling journalism bubble and getting to do what I like want and getting people to actually read my stuff all that kind of stuff I do feel like every day can just feel like a fight (laughs) like a battle to to the where you can get to the point of going, uh, wouldn't it be so nice to like do something easy where you like don't actually care? <laughs> you know, like when I've worked in you know newspapers and stuff like that, where you know people just come in and they write their stuff that day and then they just like go home and they don't even think about it. Sometimes I'm like, that would sound really nice because I'm sitting here agonizing like over trying to write up something that. I'm not even sure enough people will even be, you know, doing it. So, yeah, like, wrestling journalists struggle, but I think journalism in general struggle. Like, the whole system, I don't know what it's like in America, but in the UK it's definitely still, like, a very middle-class thing where to get into it, you basically need to have to do work experience, so you need to be able to afford to do work experience. Um, system is pretty tough as far as bringing in um, new voices and more diverse voices and everything like that. Yeah, can I, sorry, can, I, can I just go in very quickly? Not to get all um, reverse for Yorkshiremen, 
But I actually think I have the luckiest entry into wrestling journalism because I was at a UFC event, a UFC, I want to say UFC 120, and I bumped into uh, somebody I'd worked on, an MMA magazine, uh, Brian Elliott, and we're talking to him as we're desperately trying to find a person who can give us our credentials so we can go cage side. And he's like, um, uh, are you a wrestling fan, Will? And it's like, oh, yeah, I used to be, but, uh, you know, like most wrestling fans, it's, it's crap now. I don't really watch it. And uh, he's like, oh, well, I've just taken over a pro wrestling magazine. He's like, well, actually, uh, blah, 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 blah. And I managed to talk, talk my way out of that hole and do a profile on The Undertaker. And I ended up writing for him for nine years, which I think is a lot luckier than your way into a digital spy. Well, I mean, mine's kind of weird, too, because the first wrestling story I ever did for Digital Spy was they were asking people to um, write a story about how something in entertainment helped you with your mental health, like get over everything. And I wrote a story about the Undertaker's character helping me accept death when I was 10. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And that was the first uh, wrestling story uh, Digital Spy ever published for me. So after that, I was like, you know, like me um, revealing that uh, sad story about myself, I'd like to do more wrestling, (laughs) happier ones next time. (laughs) But you know both the Undertaker, so yeah, both Undertaker. Undertaker. <laughs> Emily, what's the best article you wrote about the Undertaker? No, oh, uh, first time I okay, so I have a, kind of a more similar story to Stephanie, where I wrote for uh, uh, as a work experience, or I guess I'd say unpaid internship over here. I worked for a like a local um theater and arts uh, website and had like a day job and stuff like that and then would go go do that um and then i pitched a story about a local indie which does not exist anymore because it was riddled with sexual predators go figure uh and um then i used that as a writing sample when i like got in touch with Uprox people completely by coincidence after I moved to California. So it was like, and that was just like, I mentioned I had written about wrestling and then it led to me working there also unpaid (laughs) at first for a month and then, you know, slowly getting to do more and more stuff. So, um, yeah, the way in is very weird and (laughs) difficult. I mean, that, that is one of the things that is overlooked. And it's one of the things I have to push back on people sometimes. It's like, and I don't begrudge first in torch because I think it, it allows me to come and go as I please. So I've got a full-time job. But, like, I've written for a magazine for 10 years. I've written for websites 10 years before that. And when they brought me onto the podcast, there was no budget to pay me. The local newspaper that was in the, rest of the West Midlands report again. You go to them and they say, well, we'll take the stuff, but it'll be for free. I mean, I do think people don't realize, this is before the coronavirus on the apocalypse has hit journalism now. They don't realize how non-existent the margins are that journalist outlets are existing on and how there is just no money for anything. 
I was going to ask this as a kind of wrap up um, more to the conversation in terms of actual changes that can come forward. Are we kind of relying on a athletic style model to come across where it's um, subscription journalism? I know the athletic has had kind of layoffs in the meantime, but does it require JP? JP the athletic mm. is not subscription journalism; it's hedge fund yes, funded journalism. Very, very <laughs> true. <laughs> um, wrestling's ahead of the curve. It has its subscription services. It's the Wrestling Observer. It's it's the Pro Wrestling Torch, and there are a few newer entrants who are only going to the business in the in the nineteen nineties, such as John Pollock and Ray with uh, Post Wrestling. Um, so I was going to I, ask I as a as an open kind of question for it then. I think any kind of subscription-based thing is not going to help us um, broaden and diversify and get the coverage wider and better because it's you have to be a certain kind of um, hardcore immersed fan to even subscribe to something. Mm. So um, putting anything like behind the kind of paywall or subscription service, like it's not going to draw like new people in at all and kind of crack open any kind of conversation it's just going to be the same type of people that already mm. subscribe to Dave and already subscribe to Wayne and, and everything like that you know and just have their favourites I don't I don't think it's any kind of subscription thing would change much uh, well one of the things I wanted to kind of ask it leads nicely into a much sort well, of before, before you change oh, topic go on. The one thing I have thought, because I, I, although I am usually a big proponent of paywalls, and I will fight to the death or mean tweets on Twitter, anybody who attacks newspaper paywalls, <laughs> the reality is wrestling adopted paywalls pretty much before anybody. Yeah. Paywalls is not the issue for wrestling media. Yeah. The issue is because there are several well-established paywall sites you're really, you're really struggling to establish why people should pay for you as well. Mm. The one I did think of, I was, I was reading, um, I've never bought a copy of the Blizzard. You know mm. how the football periodical has launched its sister one that you can read for free? Yes, yeah, um, so. I was having a look at that and I was like, maybe that's what we should try and create. You know, a, a, almost like a pro wrestling quarterly mm. that is on, a bit like the Voices of Wrestling. Actually, their um, their annual New Japan book, where you know it's it's nicely produced. Um, there is avenue to pay for it, and you release that once or two or three times a year. Well, actually, it's a way of actually showcasing some features about the big issues. Because one issue you have the one issue you have the internet is the internet. You have to have your story within a day or two of a news story breaking. Otherwise, it's very difficult to get people to read it. Like, the internet uh, places a premium on immediacy. And the the benefit of even digital magazines is it gives space to do the research, do the reporting, to actually do going more in-depth. Well, one of the things, actually, Emily, I wanted to ask you is because that you write in um, journals like that in terms of mind games and... um... An Orange Crush, is that right? Yeah, or- Orange Crush came out, has had one issue and they came out re- Yeah, Orange Crush, I know um, what is intended to be like an arts journal, not necessarily a news mm. journal, but I do think that a, 
a news journal like quarterly or something would sell I think if there was like good I think you'd have to have a mix of like more established writers with like new voices and but I I do think that that would that would work which kind of is one of the things that and slightly change changing topics here almost away from kind of wrestling journalism but one of the kind of Sorry, Sorry well, you, uh, the one anecdote I wanted to tell about professionalism in media, because I think this is a this is a key point. I think this is one of the issues with the relationship between uh, profe- uh, the promotions and the outlets, which is uh, we talk. You, you, JP, were talking about you know, no, some of these promotions aren't even companies. You know, mm. they're, they're a couple of blokes doing it, and it is always blokes doing it in their spare time at the weekend. Um, but obviously, that's not true of progress. You know, progress is, you know, I've done the, the, the articles on it. It's, 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 a very, it's a very profitable, big company. I think before the pandemic hit, it had seven people working for it, either part-time or full-time basis, not including the owners. And I was struck when I first went to Progress for Press, because I'd been there as a fan several times. But I went, I went to Progress for Press for the Wembley show. And I, you know, I've, I've been going to UFC shows at ringside since 2009. And UFC, and I know this is, you know, hobbyist part-time reporter. But, you know, the, the first time I went to UFC, they made you sign a contract. They made you promise to all these sort promise not to do all sorts all these sorts of things. Mm. And you promise not to cheer, not promise not to be drunk, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You get to progress. What's progress doing? They're literally giving the journalists beer. Yeah. And I, you know, me, JP, I like my drink. Don't like beer, but I like my drink. But my thing has always been, if you're, if you're there in a formal press capacity, Mm. um, you don't drink. You drink, you drink after you've done the show. And mm. I was just, you know, and you had people, you know, from you know, Talk Sport, Wrestle Talk, Cultaholic, and they're just drinking their beer. And I'm like, this is not how anybody in MMA media, other than Brazilians, Brazilians are awful. Anybody who's been at a UFC show will tell you the Brazilians just go wild. It's, it's, it's quite remarkable. But uh, but no, no one in MMA media would behave like the uh, most of the British media crew would do at a progress show. Yeah, and it just talks about the lack of professionalism that's endemic in uh, British wrestling. Well, a company that I normally would say is always professional, um, but this last weekend, I started to ask some very serious questions, and I wanted to kind of cover something a bit more fun and light that on a regular week would probably send me somewhat insane. And we have a couple of sort of big New Japan fans, which is always interesting as a company that I think has done a lot more to kind of grow and cultivate its fan base a lot better than we ever kind of really appreciate. Um, but I want to ask, um, and... I'll ask you first, Emily. Is everything evil or is everything just shit? No, everything is evil. Come on. No, I... I, uh, I read your take on this. And I, I won't uh, lie. I, I had a thought. I was... I'm, I know I was more positive about the evil turn than a lot of people, although I didn't, like, 
really care for his matches last weekend, but I did like a lot of his New Japan Cup matches. But like, I don't know. I'm I'm pro the evil turn because uh, um, it's partly I think because everything sucks so much in like the real part of wrestling that like this just insane storyline where it's like, oh, suddenly he has this wild, like, spinal tap entrance and Hiromu's, like, screaming and it's just, like, such a weird time for wrestling where it's, like, they can only do one-third capacity crowds anyway. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm here for it. I'm here for just Dick Togo is here. Like, let's go crazy. Like, this seems like a good time to experiment with something in a fun way so i i am a naito homer if he ever gets any iwgp heavyweight title match in the future i will be all in on rooting for naito but like i i am excited about what they're gonna do with evil maybe it'll suck but like i'm i'm here for it i'm on board you're on board with it steph yeah um, I, I loved it as well. Like, I, you know, I, I think I said to you before, JP, like, I, that I had this, like, fantasy of Hiromu winning this tournament to, like, bring happiness and light to us. And obviously that didn't happen. And this whole thing with Evil, like, he finally got a personality during this tournament. And it might be the personality of a man that hits you in the balls, but it is at least like something and then to get to the final the, the him joining the bullet club and then him actually winning like you can't fault Gato for actually really getting behind someone for saying okay we're going to move your factions you're going to change your look and we're actually going to put the two belts because I don't think anyone expected that so I thought it was amazing I think hopefully um Hiromu can get something out of it because his performance at at the end of that match was such the like theater that I love of New Japan, and I just like my whole story in my head is that Evil spent this whole lockdown getting more and more angry about how people just think Sonata is this great handsome man, and Evil has been out there in his cloak and his eyeshadow, and no one has even given him a second thought, and he's just been like, "Fuck this! I'm kicking you in the balls! I'm joining Bullet Club." The only person I feel sorry for is my mum, who's Jay White's biggest fan and wants Bullet Club to release an official statement saying that he's still their leader. <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly don't know. We've got two here in, in love with evil for this. Jay White, we're going to leave off for, for this one. That's a whole other kettle of fish. William, what about you? Oh, I thought it was terrible. Um, <laughs> I feel bad for thinking that now. I say that. It wasn't a good match, technically. No. But it was a spectacle. Um, I think... The thing is, like, the thing in New Japan is you always have to think it's, it's not primarily designed for you. Um, evil is not somebody I particularly want to be in main events uh, when I'm watching mm. New Japan. But... I, I, no, I don't mind them pushing uh, Evil as their big heel. Um, I think the issue I have is, logically, this is not the way you would do a turn. Um, it, is, it is too rapid. You know, you turn somebody heel on the Saturday, you haven't won the title on Sunday. You know, that's just the type of thing of WWE do it with Slater. You know, it, the comparison I 
said was JBL. I think it would have been it would have been much better for New Japan to actually have done this turn at, in the first round of the New Japan Cup, however they wanted to do it. We'll get on to that in a second. Establish Evil's new heel character, um, build to a final of uh, either Evil versus Sonada or Evil versus whom, uh, Takahashi, and have Emo cheat to win with the heel heat and then face um, Naito the day after when you've had this almost month period to build up the rivalry between the two of them. Um, it, it just, it's strange credibility to go for, it, I, even though I know they've been building up the fact that Evil seemed to have a badder, more heelish attitude in the lead up to the, to the final, it does train credibility to, you know, on the Friday, Evil was, mis- you know, in LAJ, they were all best mates. And then on the Sunday, um, they're, they're grudge enemies. In addition to that, I thought the outfit was bad. It was really bad. Um, the, the, the waistband with black tight, black tights does not go. It looks, <laughs> I'm not saying this in a negative way. You know, if you want to be Bender from Future Armor, go for it. But it, it does look like a ballerina costume. It was more think. Awesome Kong, I thought, than anything else. But Awesome Kong did not wear tights for the, for the reason it doesn't work. You know, mm. I, no, I've seen plenty of people wear those waistbands. They're really cool. But they're meant to be like warrior outfits. So you don't usually have tights on underneath. And it just didn't work. I also think the tights... Because they're black tights, slim thighs. Unfortunately, they don't slim mine. Um... So, well, they, maybe they do, and they're just huge. Um, but it just didn't suit him. Um, and that is part of the issue. When you turn somebody heel the day before the biggest match in their career, you don't give yourself any time to fine-tune um, how you're going to present them on their coming-out party. And then finally, oh, fuck off with a bullet club. <laughs> um, like, I... I'm not as anti-bullet club as some people who watch New Japan are. I think there's a bit of gatekeeping coming on, like, oh, the bit of New Japan that Americans like, we must hate. But the the, the brilliance of the bullet club was the idea of this is the, like, foreign faction. So it would make perfect sense for them to just not be around during this period where New Japan can't get any foreigners in. Mm. And I think New Japan would have been much wiser to you know to to uh, stand no, to to stand in solidarity with uh, Steph's mum to just 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 let the Bullet Club stay in the sidelines until you can get the Tongans and Jay White and Kenta back into Japan, and then you know just have Evil, Dick Togo, Ishimori, and somebody else. I want to say show, which is a very mm. controversial opinion, just form some new heel faction. Like New Japan, you don't just have to have the same factions you had in 2013. You can create new ones. Um, and then fourthly, I, it, it does, it is starting to feel like uh, uh, Ghetto, obviously, when he kind of Put the title on um, on Carador when nobody ever saw it coming. Um, that was like such a ballsy call. Everybody said he was crazy, and it more than paid off. It was an ingenious call. 
that has paid so much dividends, not just in Hans Okada's career, but also in Hans Tanahashi's. And then obviously he did the same thing with AJ Styles, who was a very low ebb in his career when he came to New Japan. And they did the same thing. It does feel like he has fallen out of love with that as a tactic. And he just wants to keep doing it and doing it and doing it without realizing he was dealing with very unique talents. Like having stood with solidarity with uh, Steph's mom, I am now not going to stand in solidarity with Steph's mom. But in the sense of, I always thought Jay White was hurt by being rushed into the IWGP title scene. Uh, I think he was pushed beyond his level um, and that hurt him. Maybe the uh, IC belt first would have been the one. I would have said never. I, I think never would have been a brilliant level for Jay White when he when he yeah. first got that IWGP title. Um, and I feared the same thing for Evil. And then fifthly, it just talks to the incoherence of the New Japan product because it's like, I'm looking at this story and I'm like, so okay, are the Bullet Club feuding with LIJ? Or are they feuding with Okada and Chaos? And there's always been the problem with this post um, King of Pro Wrestling 2018 iteration of the Bullet Club, which is you have the stuff the Bullet Club is doing, and then you have Ghetto being a dick to Okada. And uh, for the same reason I said about um, why the Bullet Club shouldn't really be part of New Japan at the moment. Ghetto has no place in the Bullet Club. He shouldn't be a part of it. It's completely a get. It'd be, it is like Vince McMahon being part of the NWO. It completely goes to point against the point of the uh, gimmick. Um, but also, you know, he's he is such a like a hard on for this rivalry with Okada. It always mixes the message. So yeah, though, evil champion wouldn't be what I would do. But you know, it's a very. It's a reasonable idea. Dick Togo as his henchman, get in. That's cool. Uh, but not this way. This is just a mediocre idea done well, in the worst possible way. Well, I mean, Emily, do you feel that this is... I mean, ultimately, is this just a stopgap? If the Dome goes ahead, is the biggest match they have Naito Okada again for a, what, fourth? Maybe a... It'll be a fourth time in the Dome. Is that the match you go to? Therefore, is Evil just a stopgap in order to get Evil to a level so he's maybe challenging possibly more around Intercontinental? Gosh, I don't know. I guess I haven't thought about, like, what are they going to do for the Dome this year? Because my big theory before this was that they were going to do, like, Naito was going to lose to Ibushi, and that would, like, crown him. But that was also kind of what I wanted to happen, but I was like, this is plausible. But I don't even know, like, are they even going to do... Like, can they even do the Tokyo Dome? Like, I, I haven't thought that ahead that far, but, like, I feel like maybe the plan is to put it on a more established guy for the Dome. I think that seems pretty plausible, like, whether that's Naito Okada again or maybe, like, I don't know, they, they were hinting at Naito Tanahashi for a while. They could do that, like... There are a few other options. I don't, I don't, yeah, I can't even think of like, what are they going to do for Wrestle Kingdom? Like, because the world is too crazy. <laughs> my, my working theory has been after, after, this is my best case scenario. As somebody who is a Naito stan, and I will still say, which 
Matt, the Match of the Month podcast on this here network uh, agreed with me after they rewatched the matches that the Naito Okada match was much better than the Naito, uh, sorry, the Okada Ibushi match, which I thought was highly overrated. A good match, but highly overrated. But my hope is you get Naito evil. And obviously, we all know Naito hates the IC title. And so Naito refuses to challenge for the IC title because he never wanted it in the first place. And so Naito beats Evil to get the world title back. You can do whatever you want to do the world title. And then you have Evil with the IC title, heel IC champion, to uh, be chased by Sonata. Steph, how are you fantasy booking New Japan then in that case to get to the Dome? What are you going with? Oh, God. I mean, no I, pressure. I... I can't really see Evil headlining the Dome, but then again, I could not see Evil being the double champion <laughs> last week, so that's a stupid thing to say. But um, I want to like the the issue with them not, you know, having having the foreigners at the minute. Um, I I first want to see like what they're going to do with the G one. Like hopefully they'll get the foreigners back. Cause I, they are going to need them they don't i i don't think have enough to make a great g1 tournament um i don't know what's going to happen with bullet club because i feel like it's either gonna have to be jay white and evil forming some double evil team alliance or this turning into a rivalry where we have a split bullet club again (laughs) maybe um but then with nido like I don't know, that poor guy, he just can never catch <laughs> But I think when it comes to evil, like the real money's probably in evil and, and Sonata uh, anyway. But then in my like heart, I just want to see Hiromu rise into the heavyweight division and actually be like the savior of everything and take down evil. That's why I kind of thought um, that when the match with Evil was made for both championships, you know, when Hiromu said, like, you can put one or both on the line, I don't mind. In my head, I was thinking, but just put the Intercontinental title on the line because then Hiromu could, like, feasibly win that, and it'd be awesome. But now he's put them both on the line. It's like, well, they're not going to give Hiromu both belts unless Gato is just fucking with all of us. And it, this is just going to be like a merry-go-round of belt changes until we get to the dome. I think in terms of Hiromu, that will be, for me, that's the long term. I think we're going to get a bit of a Naito journey with Hiromu, which, considering Hiromu's fan base, I think is going to be sheer fucking torture for them for like four years until you get one moment at the Dome where he'll win and then probably get attacked. Um, I would storyline where Naito is like so depressed over what's happened and Hiromu is more that kind of like angry sad. like we no, we gotta go fight this and I was like no I just wanna like I'll just not <laughs> anyone lower in the card because I can't bring myself to do like the main match and Hiromu's just out there like taking them all on like taking on evil taking on every member of Bullet Club <laughs> and he's just like rises to the top and you've got to say like um, I can't believe you're saying this uh... It may have been uh, Sarah Farrell. But like Hiromo must be in the running for Wrestle of the Year based on his performances, um, yeah. which is remarkable when you think of what he's came back from. And actually, the um, 
the match that most impresses me, oh, I'm completely blanked on the guy's name now, the, the opening match he had against the guy who broke his neck. Honma. Homer, I completely blanked on his name. Mm. Like I used to love Homer. You know, I remember. I remember. I was in Trinidad. I was in the Caribbean, watching like a Homer match on my tablet when I was meant to be on the beach because uh, like a, the latest New Japan show had dropped. And Homer is obviously a shadow of his former self, but Hiromo got a real match out of him because he's just that on fire at the moment, mm. and it's incredible. You know, people people thought he was going to be like Homer when he came back, that he'd be somebody who just wouldn't be able to work at anywhere near the level he used to be able to, and he's came back uh, better than ever. Emily, you've written several several pieces covering sort of Dominion and the New Japan Cup. Um, just as we're kind of wrapping things up, Hiromu, is that where you go to long-term? Is he effectively... I mean, for me, he seems like he could easily be the face of New Japan for a few years. Oh, for sure. But then uh, I had the same reaction as when they made the match for both titles. I was like, oh, I wanted it so badly to be just for Intercontinental because it would seem possible. But, um, yeah, I think he could definitely be the face of the company going forward. Or they could just try and have him be like the face of the junior division and they could see him as like I don't know because of his like having Liger's last match and stuff like that they could have a more long-term plan for him with the juniors but yeah I mean he's how old is he? he's 30 they tend to kind of like build up a lot of their kind of home guys kind of slowly so I think it, it will be a journey of a couple of years before he's like a real face of the company guy can I, can I just go in as well? One of the things I think New Japan doesn't get enough credit for is how they they build characters with like the non-straight man's gaze in mind. Like mm-hmm. WWE has a lot of attractive man. I mean, believe me, I've checked. And uh, but they're all their characters, their personas, all build her around what straight men think is cool. So like they're, they're really loud or they're silent and stoic and they come out to rock music. Whereas you look at New Japan, I think they're very good at building these different characters that they're pitched at a level with a subtlety that I just don't think WWE has. And I think Hiromu is the best example of that because it's a bit on the nose. Like, he's this good-looking guy uh, with the, the colourful clothes who's an artist and loves cats. Like, it's, it's brilliant. Um, and it's amazing that, in many ways, the most sexist promotion in major, mm. in major league pro wrestling is the one that is so adept at not pitching every single character at the male gaze. It's, it's quite remarkable. That's the thing, like how you described Hiromu, like, that's brilliant because if someone, you know, asked me to describe Roman Reigns, I, I don't think I'd have anything to, to say. Like that, there's no character there whatsoever. And if Big you, dog. Yeah, he's the big dog. But if you, um, where some people might look at Hiromu's character and 
and just from looking at it, be like, I don't get this. This is too wacky. But if you're following it, you're invested in his character because he's been able to put across to you what his actual character is um, and everything about him. Um, you know, even like the stuff he does on, on Instagram or YouTube or whatever, it's all part of what makes you fall in love and become so invested in Hiromu. And yeah, I would have a really hard time describing the actual characters of any WWE superstar right now and that's kind of like that's the most annoying thing um right then but New Japan does have a good way of just building up like actual actual characters and yeah they're not just the kind of what straight men would want our wrestler to be on that note that is a lovely way to wrap up this conversation and it also guarantees Steph that we will be playing Hiromu's theme tune as a closer (laughs) to this it feels like it'd be rude not to do that. But I would really like to thank you all. It's been an absolutely fantastic and enlightening conversation. Emily, where can the good listeners find more of your work? And- uh, the good listeners can find my uh, more of my work um, on uh, fanbyte.com slash pro wrestling and on deadlockpw.com. I do regular reviews of New Japan shows for Fanbyte and kind of just write about a variety of things. For Deadlock, uh, and you can find all of my work and just tweets on my Twitter account uh, at Emily of Pratt. Steph, anything to plug? Any hey. big interviews like Corey and uh, Corey Graves and Carmella? Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Stephanie M. Chief. Um, uh, as I said, I've got one with Brandy Rhodes. It just went up. Um, one with uh, Bailey the day before that. And also, um, my website, stephaniechase.co.uk, has, like, all my, like, favorite stuff. And on YouTube, uh, forward slash stephaniechasewrestling. William, last but by no means least. Yes. What um, have you got so, to plug? Uh, so, obviously, I'm on uh, Pro Wrestling uh, Torch uh, for British Wrestling Report, which has, uh, for reasons I'm not entirely sure, became an interview podcast. That was there with the intention. Um, we've had some really interesting discussions. What I'm, what I'm trying to do is get out to the various different parts of these isles, uh, these islands, uh, both Great Britain and, and the island of Ireland. So, you know, we've had Sarah Green from Scotland. We've had Claire Sims from uh, my neck of the woods, Wolverhampton. Later in the, later in the week, so after, just after this comes out, we'll have uh, Sarah Farrell to talk about Ireland. We also had, um, it's already up, is a interview with Big Wavy Roy Johnson about the role that race and racism plays in British wrestling. You can also find me on uh, the It Could Be Said po- uh, podcast. So just Google It Could Be Said, Bus Sprout, and you'll probably find it, which is a politics podcast, which I do with some friends from university. And I will give you one final plug, which is I... For my shoot job, I had the uh, great pleasure of hosting Patrick Vernon, who is a civil rights campaigner and cultural historian, to talk about his campaign to make Rinrush Day the anniversary of the arrival of HMS Rinrush into the UK, carrying people from the Caribbean to settle in in Great Britain uh, to make that a public holiday. Um, We had that talk at the University of Wolverhampton, and that talk is actually available on our Quality and Diversity website as a podcast. Brilliant. And we will have links for all of this in the show notes. Thank you all so much. I'll speak to you all next time.
Bye. Are you ready to meet the moment? Ozzy and our friends at Chevrolet are proud to present Real Talk, Real Change to help foster racial equality in America. And we're inviting you to help. Join me, Carlos Watson, as I talk with key leaders from across the country about racial disparities in America's healthcare system. Look for The Carlos Watson Show and Real Talk, Real Change on YouTube and subscribe. Or download The Carlos Watson Show wherever you get your podcasts.